Hark the bardic paladin Who sings and plays again He tells the tales of glory And weaves a magic story He'll join you at your table And ask you to share a fable Heroes of humble origin Villains who must be fought again No matter their skill or prowess The people in life are countless so we pray you heed our request. Enjoy this tale of sidekicks and sidequests. Episode 106 Kira the Death Knight Chimney Sweep. Welcome to Sidekicks and Sidequests the Dungeons and Dragons podcast that helps to put humans back into humanity and breathe life into your campaign NPCs with backstory and bravado. That's right, we're building a world, one character at a time. I am your host, Kurt Krenwelge, the Bardic Paladin, and I'll be joining Mike Christensen's table in the Levitating Platter. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another exciting episode of Sidekicks and Sidequests, still the best unofficial Dungeons and Dragons podcast, in my humbly biased opinion. I've got an awesome guest for you this week, but before I get to the guest, you know I have to do the thing. I have to do the ad read. So my first sponsor, of course, is Plus One EXP. Uh, Tony Vicinda is the mastermind behind this mastercraft of beard balms, game design, and community building. He's got all of the beard balms named after all of the basic stats from D&D. So whether you feel like picking up a can, applying it to your face, and smelling that sweet aroma and that sweet victory that comes along with perhaps some increased strength, dexterity, charisma, and more. Beards and Beyond is the indie RPG that helped to launch this entire brand, but Tony has collaborated and developed several other indie games, including Repugnant, Eye Toaster, down we go, Through the Void, Vamp Nugula, and Brand Standing, you know, just to name a few. If you support Plus One EXP either by buying something on their website or going to tonyplus1.itch.io, it all helps funnel into the Plus One Forward program, which seeks to support additional indie tabletop content creators to continue making awesome stuff. So I would highly encourage you to follow Tony and Plus One EXP on all of the socials, Twitter, Facebook, YouTube, Twitch, and be sure to join their Discord server in order to keep up with all the various projects that are being worked on, as well as upcoming interviews, one-shots, and actual plays of some of these other amazing indie TTRPGs. If you don't mind, when you go to the website, plus1exp.com, you see that affiliate code box, you want to type something in, and you don't want to just guess, type in the word Randolph, and this will help you save some coin on your purchase, no extra cost to you. Again, that code is Randolph, at checkout on the website, plus1exp.com. All right, without further ado, hello, mystery contestant. Would you care to introduce yourself? Tell us who it is that you are and what is it that you do? Hi, I am Mike Christensen. I am the uh, person behind the Super Geek Mike YouTube channel, and I talk about Dungeons & Dragons and other RPGs and Critical Role, and the goal of my channel entirely and all my videos is to help new game masters find their style or not even new game masters, but help game masters find their style and refine what they're doing and introduce cool things about the hobby. Yeah. 
I really like your vibe and your setup, your presentation, the way you do things. Oh, thank you. Credit is due where credit is due. <laughs> and um, how you first came across my radar screen was you got a name drop from someone pretty major in the YouTube D&D sphere. Yes. Can you tell me about that experience and what that was like? That was surreal because the day that happened... I finally held my 25,000 subscriber live stream, which was fully like three, four months after I'd actually hit 25. It had been a wild couple of months with me losing my day job and trying to figure out, am I doing this full time or trying to find a new day job and all this stuff. So just as that was settling, I, I was doing my live stream and I had seen Matt. We're talking about Matt Colville. Mm -hmm. He had commented on that video. Uh, a video of mine about sort of a response and like expansion of a questing beast video about how original D&D was basically structured like an MMORPG, where it all took place in real time, whoever was around played in those games, and you kept track of the time that took place in the game world, according to real time when you weren't playing. And mm. I saw that video, I thought it was fascinating. I sort of came at it from a very different perspective of being not in the OSR, like questing beast is, and sort of offering mm. my own perspective. And so Matt Colville was doing research on a video and tweeting about it. And someone who had seen my video wasn't even a subscriber, but was just enjoyed some of my videos sort of pointed it to him and was like, Hey, this kind of talks about what it is you're talking about, which is that it seems like this game assumes you're playing in real time. There's a super geek Mike video about that. So he commented on the video cause I'm wearing an MCDM shirt, in, mm. in, which is his brand in the video. And I thought, Oh, that's awesome. I found the Twitter thread and like how he was made aware of the video and I was like, that was awesome. So the day that the shout out happens, I'm doing a live stream and somebody says, how did it feel to be shouted out in a Matt Colville video? And the video wasn't out yet. Now I now know, oh, that person must be a patron of Matt Colville's. I guess they saw a script or something before it came mm. out. But I was like, oh, I think you're confused. He commented on a video and I tweeted about that, but he hasn't actually, he never talked about me on my channel. <laughs> that would be ridiculous. And then like <laughs> five hours later, uh, less than that. I was literally like in the car. I was like, oh, new Matt Colville video. I'll put that on as I'm driving. <laughs> and within like five minutes of the video, I hear my own name. And actually, as he's starting to talk about the subject, I was like, wait a minute. Hold wait on a, a second minute. here. <laughs> I think I know where this is going. So that was truly surreal. You know, because I am such a fan of his content. And he is one of, I have a lot of influences on my YouTube channel, but he is one of them and not undeniable. Sure. Ditto, hold, yeah, exactly. holding my hand up here, ditto as well, yeah. I haven't been shouted out in an episode yet, but tweeted at him a couple of times and he's responded and that's made me feel cool. Yeah, exactly. It's just kind of really awesome to interact with someone who you just enjoy their work and you're just a fan of them. So that was a really, and of course, the video he talks about is the one where my sound was all goofed up, but what can you do? Mm. Yeah. <laughs> you know what? Be better that he, he enjoyed the video for what it was than for it to be my most polished video and no one ever saw it, so... Uh, obviously, you know, with the Matt Colville bump, <laughs> I'm sure that helped in the YouTube subscriber count. But before that, you got your idea to start this whole Critical Role Demystified series. Can you talk about that and like where that inspiration kind of came from? Yeah, I mean, Critical Role Demystified is basically the entire reason I started the channel because I had been talking to friends about Critical Role, about Vox Machina. This is before there was a cartoon, I think before there were even comic books. And I was just like, oh, it's really good. And people were like, it's such a time commitment. And I was like, yeah. Yeah. So I thought like, oh, it'd be nice if there was like a video that was about 
where you can start. And then I was like, how would you talk about the player who left? I guess that would be its own video. And I sort of had those in the back of my head for literally years. Like, oh, at some point I should make those videos, put them in the Facebook group with the friends I have. Mm. And then a couple of years ago, I was doing some TikTok content and, you know, sort of struggling with that platform. The stuff I now do on YouTube, I was doing on TikTok and it's not really the right platform for that. But, mm. you know, I was making content. I was like, you know what? It would be kind of nice to go through every episode and talk about lessons. It's sort of like, because I was thinking about Victor the Black Powder Merchant, who, for mm-hmm. those who are not familiar with the cartoon or with the live stream, is just this eccentric character who shows up a couple of times and is beloved by the fans. But I was like, I don't think the reason that character works is just because of the voice. I think it's because of what he signals about Percy's arc. I think that's actually the more interesting part that we can dive into. So I was like, well, maybe down the road I should talk about that. And then sort of from there, it started snowballing into okay, I kind of think I could do that with every episode and find things to talk about. And uh, probably a TikTok with its limit of four minutes and having to cook people within five seconds is a little bit limiting. So that led to the YouTube channel. But I also knew there was a lot of non-critical role stuff I wanted to talk about. So that's where the format came along of, you know, two videos a week. Every other week, one of those videos is about critical role, just going in order through the, uh, the series of, well, for now, Vox Machina. I've really been enjoying it, too. Thank you. The stream started in like March of 2015. And so by the time I saw it pop up in my YouTube suggested feed, uh, it was like the summer of Mm. 2015 when I finally heard about it. I was like, oh, this Craghammer thing. What's this? And I was like, oh, they're playing D&D. I started playing D&D fourth edition. Mm -hmm. uh, And that's when Acquisitions Incorporated was the big thing. And that was the big celebrity thing. And so then I was like, oh oh, okay, voice actors and like, oh, this is really engaging and cool. So then that's how I got my start into the Critter fandom. So yeah, it's been really enjoyable to sit down with you in each of these videos <laughs> and you like are like, okay, here's what happens. Here's the context. Here are the lessons we can learn. It's just a very enjoyable series. And it's nice to go down memory lane and be like, oh yeah, that's what this is going on. Yeah. Yeah, especially with, you know, the gradual reinterpretation or reframing in our memories of what something formative was like in a hobby that we enjoy is to kind of go Mm. back and be like, Oh yeah, you can sort of see where this was happening by accident and sort of see where like they knew what they'd had. And they like, were trying to chase that, like that moment and recreate it. And others where it's like, Ooh, I think they're still struggling with this aspect. And, you know, having the benefit of hindsight, because I think there are people who make incredible recap videos about the current campaign of, Critical Role, and, and mm. of other actual play shows as well. My favorite is probably Luna, the YouTube channel Lou Boffin, who really frames a lot of her commentary around like basically like conspiracy theories, like what's going on and what's going to happen, which I think gives it an extra <laughs> layer other than just here's what happened, here's my opinions. It's also like the fun of speculating, which is all we can really do as fans is speculate. But I think by mm. formatting it more as a fun speculating about the lore, like you might with like X-Files or Lost, it helps like focus that channel in a way that I think a lot of other recaps struggle with. I could never do recaps in the way that those people do where it's like live or like right after the episodes. Like I am probably about three months behind on campaign three at least. Oh yeah. No, I remember starting campaign three and then uh, with a newborn and stuff, I just dropped off. So I kind of like no cursory through the grapevine through social media, but that's that's about it. I I I don't know the details, so I'll I keep telling myself I'll have to go back and watch it. <laughs> exactly. I definitely have a plan to to catch up. I'm just not like I don't have the free time right now to do that because I'm making content. <laughs> I'm making a lot sure. of content right now. But also, 
I wouldn't want to do, I can't imagine for the stuff I want to talk about, mm-hmm. wanting to talk about this stuff until after it was all done. Because now we have the benefit of seeing where everything was going and seeing, you know, and having the recap sort of wrap up conversations after the campaign where they answer questions from the fans and they answer questions from each other and being able to like use that resource. Because there's times they have after shows and they'll ask Matt, hey, what's going on with this? And he'll be like, I can't tell you because we're still <laughs> in the campaign. So being able to come back to that much later really makes what I'm trying to do so much more possible and so much easier because I couldn't, I would not just be able to do a recap and be like, here's a fun thing. And like, if you want to do this in your own game, you can do this. I'm like, first of all, I don't have the stamina to do it live, Uh, but also like, that's just not the part I want to talk about. I want to really pull back the curtain and see what was happening as far as I can guess or tell in the head of Matt as he's working on this campaign. And that's just, I could not imagine trying to do that live. And I promise we will get to the normal interview questions here of the show. But I just thought of this, you know, since we talked about our mutual hero, Matt Colville, Mm -hmm. and you explaining the process behind Critical Role Demystified, Um, you know, your Patreon subscribers get to help you decide other actual play shows to tackle in your Mm -hmm. research and doing the same sort of structure. Our hero, Colville, famously has done campaign diaries for some of his games that he's run. And so I'm curious if some of those MCDM campaigns are on the shortlist, perhaps, of trying to do the same sort of approach. Obviously, in campaign diaries, Matt's very articulate with explaining, you know, like his DM teaching moments and getting into the nuances of the story and stuff like that. But I'd be curious to see maybe like what the super geek Mike perspective on that might be. I think it would be if I was going to do a campaign diary for Colville campaign that we've seen, it would probably be Dusk because that's the only one where Mm. he hasn't done his own campaign diary because and I was just thinking about this probably this weekend uh, when we're recording this how much the format of Critical Role Demystified owes a lot to the campaign diary format. You know, Mm. of the sort of, here's what was going on, here's a recap, but also I'm going to dip in and dive into the lessons. The fact that he's offered that format already for so many of his campaigns means that I think Dusk is the only one where every episode doesn't have a companion recap of some kind or a live stream of some kind or what have you. Uh, So that that is definitely one that I, especially as, as me as well, my first edition that I dm'd was fourth edition fourth edition exactly it wasn't the first one i played but it was the first one Mm. where i dm'd it was the first time i understood the rules uh (laughs) because i'd only played a little bit before fourth edition came out so i think that would be a fun one to talk about but there's a bunch on the list you mentioned acquisitions incorporated that was definitely my intro into actual play And, and the other games that chris perkins ran back in the fourth edition days i would just scour youtube and find like the game he ran for some robot chicken writers and mm, uh, games yeah i remember that one or in britain and just like that was all we had back in the olden days of actual players <laughs> when you had to have like a camera set up or have the microphones of professional podcasters i think that's a perfect segue then into the question of do you currently or have you ever played dnt before i mean I'm, I'm pretty sure it's a dead <laughs> giveaway but yes uh i've been playing dnd since my sophomore year of college, I was about 19 and I came home and my, or I came back to the dorm and my roommates were rolling up characters. They were like, Hey, we're playing D and D. Do you want to play? And I was like, <laughs> no, I think I'm okay. <laughs> and then I heard them describing their characters and I was like, Oh, this is not what I thought it was at all. Like, this is mm. just storytelling. And like, like, you know, as someone who was into drama and theater, I'm, I'm not, I'm not the kind of person who's like, it's just like improv. It's just like theater, but it has enough common ground with that that it was very easy for me to jump into it. And I was 
so deep so quick and in ways that I was like, okay, well, I want to find a way to like legitimize this hobby and, and I'm still keeping it at a distance. So I'll find cool mm. things I can do, like draw comic book style covers for each session that we have, because that definitely indicates that I'm less invested in this game. Mm. <laughs> I was so deep so fast. Hook, line and sinker. Absolutely. Of course, you know, the namesake of this podcast is sidekicks and side quests. So we like to ask the question of who happens to be your favorite NPC or sidekick character, whether they're from an RPG, video game, movie, film, television, etc. And why is this character your favorite NPC or sidekick? This is tough because I know this is recency bias. I know if you ask me in six months, I'll have a different answer. In two years, I'll have a different answer. And they'll all be things that I've grown up on or have a deep love for but right now because my wife has been playing through god of war ragnarok mimir is really high on my list mimir Mm. is the severed head that just hangs on the back of kratos's belt and just sits there cracking wise and offering observations and being insightful and i like him for so many reasons because he's not just one thing so many wise characters are just wise characters I love Uncle Iroh so much in my heart. Mm-hmm. And he's a comic relief character as well, but he's also rarely the voice of the audience, the way that Mimir is. For Mimir to sit there as, in the first game, very slight spoilers, as the, the child, Atreus, is sort of getting a power trip about what they've experienced. Mimir's just sitting there going, should we be worried about that? Is this concerning? It feels like this is not a good line for these things to go down. And basically vocalizing what the audience is thinking but also Mm -hmm. he has just vast swaths of lore but also he's intensely funny i I just really like mimir but there's also i don't want to just keep listing characters i like who i think of as side characters but i don't know man hurley from lost is terrific weezer album named after him so i mean yes you know exactly pretty cool he is very much a voice of the audience as well and i think there's like five characters on that show who serve as sort of audience surrogates at various points, but he's the one who's the most consistent and one of the most beloved characters on that show. But I do think he is kind of by definition, a sidekick just because of the way that show was structured and just always liked that character a lot. And I'm so reluctant to list this last example, but it is one of my favorite films. It is the film Unbreakable by M. Night Shyamalan. And the side character I'm thinking of is Bruce Willis's son in that film, who is just a hype man for Bruce Willis, who's like, no, 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 I promise you are a superhero. You are a superhero. And like, it's very weird for me to be like, yeah, he's one of my favorite sidekicks. He pulls a gun on the main character. It's one of the most tense scenes in cinema. But like, he is such an interesting reflection of like the danger of Samuel Jackson's rhetoric being taken seriously, but also he eggs on Bruce Willis to try cool things. Like the weightlifting scene in Unbreakable is a, a pure joy. Anytime I watch that scene, I'm just the biggest smile on my face. But every time I get to the gun scene, I stop breathing for three minutes. And the fact that those both rotate around the same character, having the same opinion, which is my dad is basically a superhero. Mm. And the fact that that sentiment is expressed into drastically different ways one of which being sort of jolly and light and joyful the fun of a superhero movie which that movie kind of is and kind of isn't uh the fun sequence of like you're testing your powers and figuring things out and then the really really dark side something we don't see in film very often which is 
a child pulling a gun on his dad, not because he's trying to hurt his dad, but because he says, this won't hurt you, I promise. And the father being like, my son's about to shoot and kill me because he believes this delusion. That's such a such a fascinating character and a movie I love so much. Uh, so those are my three examples for very different reasons. Sounds like I need to go back and watch Unbreakable then again, because I only remember bits and pieces. Oh, it's great. It's slow. And it definitely the fact that that movie came out, you know, the same year as the first X-Men movie right before superhero movies like changed radically makes it a very mm -hmm. strange artifact because it is like mm. an adaptation of comic book ideas in like a more realistic grounded way, but not at all in the way that Hollywood would then go on to do for 23 more years. Mm -hmm. But it's also like, I don't know, man, I think it's I think it's a pretty good and my Shyamalan movie. I'd put it up there with the sixth sense. So. All right. And then same thing. What's been one of your favorite side quests, whether it's been an RPG, video game, movie, film, television, etc. And why has this side quest been your favorite? I'm actually going to go to the D&D movie for this one, because Ooh, I think okay. the fact that the best scene in that movie is essentially a side quest to get a magic item is really funny and very D&D &D to me. Mm, yeah. Slight spoilers ahead. I'm not I'm going to try not to get into it too much, but basically they spend, I think, most of Act Two, you know, at least a good chunk of it. I haven't timed it out, but, you know, at least 45 minutes just trying to go get this magic helmet. Because that's the way they want to get into the vault, is to get this magic helmet. And the fact that it winds mm -hmm. up being this deep, deep dive, both literally into the Underdark and, you know, with all of these different steps that they have to go to. They have to go and dig up the graves, and then they have to go and find the dude, and then they have to go to the place where he hid it, and then they have to, you know, get across the bridge and fight the Guardian and all these things. And all of that just to go get one magic item. I know that it's like the next step of the plan, but that has huge side quest energy to me. <laughs> Sure. Yeah, for sure. And it also introduces Zank, who is I, I, my favorite character in that film. Right. Which I know in your videos, you talked about how, you know, I guess the they revealed like, oh, this was really supposed to be Dritz Duorden's character. But it was it would be really weird to try and stick him in this movie with no context to a wider audience that doesn't understand who this character is. So we'll just get the guy from Bridgerton to do it instead. Basically, I think I, there were probably a bunch of reasons why they didn't go with Drizzt, but I'm so grateful for them because it means that they could bring in a character who I think with Drizzt, you'd be tempted as filmmakers to take him as seriously as the character takes himself, or you'd be mm -hmm. worried that he's taking himself too seriously. So you don't want to like annoy the fans because it's someone original. He can really be the most self-serious person in the world. And the rest of the film can be like, who's this clown? And right. being able to walk that balance really well, I think that would be a lot trickier with an established character of any kind, not just Grist, but if it was anyone from any other work. Minsk and Boo or right. Jarlaxle or anything like that. Yeah, I know. think they would have that same struggle, and I'm just very glad that they dodged that for their own character, who they just they could take seriously when they wanted to and not feel like they were taking the out of a beloved character when they roast him a little bit. And then the only other final thing I'll say about the D&D movie, which I did go see and loved, uh, just A plus work on the practical effects. I yes. think we need more movies that do practical effects. I was so delighted by how wonky they are. Like, I don't mean that as an insult. Like, they feel like practical effects. Sometimes they're good and sometimes they're they're fine. But the fact that they're fine and they still just like look like practical effects, they look like a dude in a suit, they don't look like a real life creature is fine. Mm. Like, I think yeah. we all kind of forgot that, like, the moment that the Star Wars franchise got money, they just hired the guys who made the Muppets to make them a Muppet. Like, and we were all we were all cool with that. 
well, I wasn't born yet, but you know, in theory, everyone was like, <laughs> oh yeah, sure. It is a big movie. Now you get Muppets. That's the rule. And I just, I'm totally on board. Anytime someone's like, yeah, this puppet is real. I dare you. I dare you to, to deny me. <laughs> like you bought a <laughs> ticket for a movie. You know, this is all fake. Why is the puppet less fake than a CGI person that we all feel the uncanny Valley vibes with? Like just buy in. It's a puppet. Who cares? Especially for a movie like that. Not every movie can get away with that. I think if Joker tried to replace someone with a puppet, it would not flow quite as well. Maybe that's a bad example. But, you know, I think that if any... Because there's no CGI characters in that one. But, um, you know, if there was an MCU movie, maybe it's a better example, and they replaced mm. a character with a puppet, I'm not sure it would work, but, like, I would love it. That if feels very Deadpool. That feels like a very Deadpool thing. So we'll have to see if uh, Deadpool 3 pulls a Jim Henson on us or not. Man, that would be... I'd be so happy with more puppets in fiction. But I think this movie... It helped this movie feel very much like the fantasy movies we grew up on. You know, Mm. it made it feel more like your Princess Brides or Dark Crystal or uh, Labyrinth or any of these things that sort of like... Kroll, Conan the Barbarian. (laughs) To to varying degrees of quality, I'm sure all of those films are. But it just sort of made it feel less like part of the standard studio machine, which sort of made it jarring when we get to the more like traditional story beats in the third act, because it gets kind of predictable at the end, which like, fair enough, movies are very often a little predictable. So they pulled some mm-hmm. tricks. I'm like, oh yeah, I'm sh- I think we saw this exact same moment in Onward. But also like, that's fine because you made yeah. me buy in through the rest of it being so practical and so fun. So, And not to mention that Onward did give some shout outs to Wizards of the Coast for use of some of their uh, intellectual properties that were featured in that movie, which I loved Onward as well. I didn't realize they did that. But yeah, I... I was delighted by Onward. I remember sitting there and watching it and just throughout the film, my wife just turning to me and being like, I promise I did not write this movie. (laughs) And then the way that we end the personal interview section of the show, what are you passionate about and why? I mean, aside from tabletop games, because it's a a huge part of it. And I think the reason why is something I've been thinking about a lot recently, just because it's been brought up in in other videos I've watched or, or, you know, and blog posts and sort of like, what, you know, what do we enjoy about this hobby? And everyone has their own answers to that. I think there is something very compelling to, you know, the idea that we're telling a story together, but, you know, you're not in full control of it. But I think that's only part of it. I think it's very exciting for people who aren't just like writers in their daily lives to have the experience of being able to tell a story and be in the driver's seat. There is that sort of permission to play. And the sort of opportunity to say, yeah, you can be just as creative as anybody. You know, we are so surrounded by content these days. And some of it is content that's very much about, well, I didn't like the new Star Wars, whatever. So here I'm going to rewrite half of it and and tell you what it would be like. And, And so there is this sort of gradual opening up of like the permission for people to basically do their own version of fan fiction or their own version of what would you do if you had control of X franchise? What would you do with whatever? I think that's just natural based on the democratization of ideas through social media, plus the proliferation of our general understanding of story structure and the fact that some of these franchises are just hit and miss. It just sort of happens. But I think D&D offers a different way to exercise the same muscle where instead of just saying, hey, here's something we didn't like, we're discontent with it. And so you're starting from a sort of cynical standpoint i don't say that to be dismissive like i like a lot of creators who make their bread and butter saying hey this franchise installment didn't work i wish it had been better 
you know, Savage Books, Nano V Movies, uh, the folks from Previewed, like these people make content I enjoy and they also spend a lot of time talking about what they do differently if they were in control of franchises. But by definition, it starts at such a like contrarian point of view that D&D opens that up to say, hey, you're not trying to fix something. You're not trying to correct a broken path. You just have the keys to tell a story and everyone has their hand on the ball. And there is something really exciting about that, about everyone getting the opportunity to tell stories together and giving them permission to do so. Otherwise, we keep falling into the idea of us and them, the people who get to tell stories and the people who get to watch stories. And D&D gives us the power to say, hey, I know how stories work and I know what I would like for my character and I, I know what I wish characters would do in these sorts of situations. And I just really love that. I really love the way that it empowers people to be creative. And that can take various forms. Sometimes it's just, hey, what if you were playing a video game, but there wasn't an arbitrary wall where the designers stopped putting in monsters? You go right when the DM thought you were going to go left, and the DM has to figure out a way to make that work. That is a form of being creative. Or it's, boy, I'm, I'm telling this story, but I wish there were monsters that actually worked for what I'm going for, but there are none in the monster manual. I guess I'm gonna have to make up my own. And that's another way that the game sort of implicitly empowers you to be creative on your own by sadly not providing you the tools you needed to tell the story you wanted. And the other is way more obvious, which is the version I talk about the most because I talk about critical role and role play heavy stories, which is, hey, what if you could tell a fantasy adventure story, but everyone got to decide how it went instead of one person doing it. And the reason I love that is because everyone should be able to do that. I think that I spend a lot of time thinking about writing, thinking about fiction, thinking about TV shows and movies. It's been my industry for a few years. I, I worked in the entertainment industry for 10 years and I absorbed voraciously behind the scenes content and all this stuff. And I kept seeing writers who I admired answer the question, where do you get your ideas in really dumb ways? Because they don't like to answer that question. Because fundamentally, they don't know. But really, the answer is, writers are just the same as everybody else. They have the same ideas as anybody, they just write them down. D&D breaks down that barrier again and says, hey, you can do what anyone else does. You can tell a story. You don't have to write it down to, for it to still matter, for it to still have an impact. So I think that is part of what draws me so much to D&D and role-playing games in general. Mic drop, you might say. Waka waka waka. All right. So now with this portion of the show done, we move on to the next segment, which is called NPC Creation. And NPC Creation is brought to you by you, the podcast audience and our patrons from Patreon. That's right. Now is the time in the show where we give a shout out to our comfortable patrons and above with a loud hurrah. So to you, Katie Downey. Anson Jablinski and my parents, as of the time of this recording, we say cheers. Again, this is for patrons who donate just a measly $2 a month or more. These folks are actually among my wealthy level patrons, which means they also get to introduce an element of chance to our random tables, which we might get to use here today. Mm -hmm. So if you want to learn more and join the coolest podcast Patreon community out there, obviously a present company, uh, you know, not excluded in the cool Patreon club, but oh, shucks. Go, go to my podcast website, check the show notes below, or just go directly to patreon.com forward slash sidekicks and sidequests to find out about our tiers. 
Help us expand our operations at the Levitating Platter in this demiplane and worlds beyond. All right. So before we began hitting all of the record buttons and making sure all the microphones were good, I asked you what kind of character we were going to be making today, and you opted for the path of randomization. Yes, indeed. All right. Well, you are a listener of the show, and so you will know that we begin our NPC creation segment by asking the question of what is the character's name? And we determine this dice roll with a D20. Alrighty. This, by the way, is the first D20 I ever bought. I still have my first dice set. Wow. Robin's Egg Blue, I think, with white numbers. Nice. It's a 15. 15. Okay, as we scroll down the list, aha, your answer was provided by previous guest Fenway Jones. Oh, cool. Kira which is spelled K-H-I-R-A and is pronounced Kira. Cool. The next question we have to ask is, what is the ancestry of our character? And we determine this by rolling 2d10s for a d100 effect. All righty. 22. 22. Okay. This is a first. Kira is a death knight. Whoa, whoa, okay. This zagged on us very quickly. Indeed it did. Kira the Death Knight, sure, but what is Kira's job or role in society could be very different as well. Just roll a regular D10 and let's see what Kira's doing. Kira is nine. Okay, your answer was provided by previous guest Ben Martin Mooney. Chimney sweep. Sure, 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 sure. Yeah, you know, Death Knights are... Prolific chimney sweeps, don't you know? Uh Uh-huh. And then the final question here that we get to do a random dice roll on before we take a slight pause is, what is the age range of our character? Let's roll a D8 and figure that one out. All right, D8. Five. Midlife. So we have a middle-aged death knight named Kira that (laughs) just so happens to be a chimney sweep. And with all of these key pieces of information in mind, When you picture this character, what are you envisioning? I'm envisioning that this character is a death knight who is posing as a chimney sweep under some sort of illusion spell in order to get close to someone for um, nefarious purposes. This Mm. is a a death knight who also has some sort of illusion capacity or some way of disguising themselves, and they will, at the drop of a hat, transform back into their death knight form. Uh, But they are actually getting close to someone and posing in plain sight. Okay. Is there a particular way that this guise appears? Well, I think it is a middle-aged woman, probably pretty lean because you have to imagine, based on what I know about chimney sweeps, which is in the very authentic Mary Poppins film, they jump in and out of the chimneys a lot when they're doing their dance Mm, numbers. Of course, yes. So probably, no, probably not. I think actually what she would be is, you know, sort of like broad, a little, little round. And in fact, that's just sort of hiding the death knight's visage underneath Mm -hmm. and their uh chimney sweep machine whatever their tool their apparatus uh transform sure brush i guess is one word you could call it uh (laughs) transforms into their lance or their sword or their battle axe when they transform interesting yeah i was gonna say so this definitely sounds like a um a uniquely flavored reoccurring villain maybe in someone's backstory of like oh there's a death knight hunting me mm-hmm. i serve a warlock patron but i turn my back on the patron and so now the patron's just like okay i'm just gonna send this death knight after you you know because you besmirched my good name or whatever 
Absolutely. And then if you had to describe Kira with three adjectives, what three adjectives would you use? Patient, because she's posing as someone with a full day job. Uh, so obviously they have some idea that they have time on their hands. There's like a word I'm looking for where it's like, she doesn't think highly of herself. Like she doesn't, she's not self-important because clearly she's willing to get in the grime with the common people and, and doesn't think of that as beneath her, which, you know, if you're talking about death knights, like Lord Soth, who's very much a regal character who still thinks of himself in very highfalutin terms, this is not that at all. You know, she's willing to get into the muck uh, as needed and creative. I think that she's kind of inventive. I think she, she could easily just find some other method to get at her prey, but this is how she chooses to do it because she has a sort of flair for theatrics. Theatrical may be a better way to put that. Very quickly trying to Google, what does the Forgotten Realms wiki have to say about Death Knights as far as the lore is concerned? According to the 5th edition version, not too much. I don't have a stat block in front of me to know whether or not they actually have spell casting abilities. But again, this is our game. We can do whatever we want. Yeah, why not have a Death Knight with some limited spell casting abilities that specializes in illusory magics in order to be able to pull off these insane kills or whatever, the feared servitor of some god of death or what have you right um the stat block in 5e has some paladin spells prepared but you could easily just add in a a quick disguise spell why not yeah sure or maybe kira happens to have an item on their yes. person to be like ah this is like my hat of disguise so it looks like a chimney sweep hat but really it's like a hat of disguise i think that's what i would go with as well because that gives you something that the players can get if they happen to do combat with kira and she doesn't make it or there's some sort of trade you get the disguise back and here's a question since we in the adjectives described kira as someone not thinking very highly of themselves you know that they want to be able to blend in and fit these roles and these disguises kind of like an agent 47 in the hitman series or mm -hmm. what have you is kira the death knight's real name or is this just like the cover name that the death knight is using does the death knight have enough care about themselves to even be like oh i have some sort of personal identity and character and all that sort of kind of stuff i think it might be a james bond situation where it's both <laughs> mm. so kira is like a cover name but also is the identity that this death knight is taken up I think, yeah, I mean, I think that's the name that the players would know them by. I don't think that Kira would necessarily care what people call her. She probably has some title or something, but mm. if the players continue to call her Kira, she'll answer to it. She's not pretentious. They do speak abyssal and common, these Death Knights. So it could be that maybe, you know, the real name isn't abyssal and you have to know abyssal in order to know what the real name is. But in common, it's just like looked at a sign and was like, Kira. Yeah, that's what you can call me. Right, exactly. Or or it was the name that meant something to her in her past. And so she Ooh. uses it when she's in, in hiding in secrets. The name has no bearing now on controlling her because she's been, you know, imprisoned through some other name. Sure, yeah. Stated lore here being Death Knights, mighty undead warriors created by gods of death or other malevolent forces. They were most commonly created from evil humanoids who in life had been Black guards, fighters, rangers, barbarians, and even paladins fallen from grace. Mm -hmm. So Kira is like the one thing that this Death Knight can pull from their past prior to their fall and becoming raised up as a Death Knight, if you will. Yeah, I think so. Or, I mean, the other option is that is a name that she simply chose because she liked it. 
it's not her title. It's just like, I wish in another life, this is who I could be. I could disappear into this, this role, this realm, go back to being an ordinary person, but that is not who I'm ever going to be able to be more than just when I'm on a job, when I'm on a mission. Mm, okay. So tragic in that way. And so I'm just trying to imagine, yeah, if, you know, I put forward the idea of like, oh, this is like a character that's like stalking the party and mm -hmm. then just has them kind of following the party. Or do you put this person like in a town and this character just sits there in the town and they, you know, every once in a while is reoccurring. Not that we have to definitively say one way or the other, but right. I'm just kind of curious your thoughts of like, if you're going to stick Kira in your game, which I hope you do, how are you best going to deploy Kira? I think it would be through the method of, yeah, pursuing the party to a city, getting in as the chimney sweep, taking a form that allows them to get close enough that they'll be undetected and probably Ooh. allowing themselves Ooh. to be spotted multiple times before they strike. I was going to say, hear me out on this. Mm -hmm. The Colville stronghold rules, you get a stronghold and you need to hire people Ooh. to take care of your keep. And so, oh, here's a chimney sweep. You know, she does a great yeah. job. She cleans the chimneys. Phenomenal work. Meanwhile, she's gathering intel. She's learning about all your weaknesses and where all the, the safety fail guard measures are, how to disable those. And then when you least expect it, disguise comes off and suddenly a CR-17 death knight is now inside your stronghold and you have to fight this creature while you don't have armor or access to your magic items or whatever else if you're really trying to punish your party. Oh, that's really good. That's really good. And and potentially has been finding a way to bring other enemies in very quickly. You know, mm. and finding some way to introduce the cupboard that opens up a portal to the army on the other side of the continent. So they don't see you don't see them coming and now you're just dealing with these enemy forces in your castle or or whatever their her plan is once she arrives. Definitely getting in through that stronghold is an excellent idea. I like that a lot. There we go. That's what we do on this podcast. Make great <laughs> ideas for you to steal. Yes, and steal I shall. And continuing on with our character creation process, we like all of our NPCs to have cool stuff on them. So what is going to be a valuable item, a piece of lore, a secret, or an ideal or concept that this character ascribes to? And this is a combo role. So we'll do a D4 first for the category, okay. and then a D6 with a particular thingamabob. All right, that is a one on the D4 and a two on the D6. Okay, so this is an item, and your item was suggested by previous guest, Elvia Garcia, a magic conducting baton. So potentially a really cool, like, bardic magic item, perhaps? Yes. Yeah, do you have any thoughts on why Kira would have a magic conducting baton on her person? It kind of lines up with the idea that she has some illusion magic as well. You know, she doesn't have to have been a former paladin. She can have been a former bard. Mm. A, a person who maybe was if we what's the bardic college college of secrets. There is secrets. Isn't there swords as well or something like that? Like kind of yeah, like a more the, fighty bard class. College of College of Whispers is what it is, I believe. Mm, OK. College of Whispers bards pose as other bards. So that's another opportunity for her to have had a baton to conduct because she was posing as some other composer or instrumentalist. And we can figure out what the baton does in a moment. But didn't Mercer write up a, a particular bard subclass that was like a college of conducting or something like that yes it was i'll see if i can find it but i think also the college of whispers bard can like steal the shadows and the images of the people they kill 
So mm. giving them that power for that reason as well works really nicely. I think it's the College of Maestro, maybe what the... Uh... Oh, okay. Yep, College of the Maestro. Yep. So that's the form that they were taking. Uh, but in reality, they're a uh, College of Whispers bard now turned a death knight. Wow. That's quite the journey. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Corrupted by evil and sin, it seems. Yeah. Now I'm just trying to imagine like her origin story of like being with a party, being this great epic bard and then tangoed with this god of death and she fell in battle. And then that god of death is like, oh, no, you're too good to like just be on in the afterlife. I'm going to steal your soul. You're going to be my death knight now and hunt your former adventuring party members and then when you're done with that you're still going to do my bidding and whatever else i want yeah interesting compelling i like it a lot and then of course all of our npcs on our podcast like to give out side quests you know that's kind of, of the whole shtick so if you want to roll randomly for a side quest that kira might be willing to offer to player characters or recruit them for you can roll a d12 or if you have a pretty good idea you could just kind of spitball it and kind of tell us what your thinking is i have an idea but i'd like to roll as well sure yeah maybe combine the two as a six six okay your answer provided by previous guest kevin chenard steal a valuable ring from a gambler okay I think she will recruit the party to do this if she thinks that they have a chance of doing so because she thinks it will help her get free of the uh, curse upon her in order to become mortal again and liberate her from the service of this foul force that has control over her. Interesting. Okay, because even though it's like, oh, you know, Death Knights are typically chaotic evil enemies and stuff like that it's kind of like an anakin darth vader sort of thing it's like oh there's still a part of her inside her that wants to be free but at the same time she's like compelled to serve and kill and all this stuff yeah i think that there's something significant about the ring it's either a magical item or it's something that she like stole in a previous life and basically if she can get that she can you know take the gem out of it or whatever it is and use that to um regain her soul Maybe that's another thing from her past that she remembered that it was like this legendary gambling ring like mm-hmm. was made by the god of luck and of gambling oh. and like left it as a token. And so whoever they favor, it just kind of passes from person to person. The the Kenny Rogers, the gambler song, uh, <laughs> you know, you have to have like a last drink and a smoke with that person and then they fall down dead and then the ring just passes on to the the person who is kind to them or is it the soul jar for a lich and by getting her own hands on it she can have control over this other magical person who's commanding her she's the henchman for a lich but she doesn't want to be and if she can get her hands on the item where they will always resurrect their horcrux and just use that as a um, bargaining chip they can earn their own freedom Okay, and so by having this artifact level gambling ring would Mm -hmm. give her the edge that she would need to be able to successfully capture the soul box or what have you of the lich. If we're imagining a lich, maybe instead of like a god of death or whatever, holding her soul ransom, basically. Oh, I was imagining that the gambling ring is the soul box. And then the players have to make a decision of, oh, well, do we want this awesome magic item Or do we destroy it so the lich doesn't come back? Because that's always a fun thing to tease your players with. So then it's a lich that's a gambler? 
I think the gambler just got their hands on it. <laughs> oh, wow. I was going to say, then how is this gambler not being hunted down by in undead creatures all the time that are trying to get that back? That's a great question. We'd have to flesh that out in the side quest. Perhaps mm. they, you know, they just because he's a gambler doesn't mean he's also not extraordinarily wealthy and well-connected. You know, I'm thinking of the Critical Role subplot where they went and gambled with a fire giant who was like the head of an entire clan in the city of Brass. Like, sure, you can maybe win things through gambling, but if you try to just steal from them, things could go extraordinarily badly, extraordinarily quickly. Yeah, so there's definitely a lot of leeway here to play with, you know, whichever angle you decide to go with or you decide to think up your own thing. But mm -hmm. OK, so with this in mind, so Kira needs the party, the player characters to go and steal this valuable ring from a gambler. So what is going to be the reward for the party? They successfully pilfer this ring. They return to Kira. They present it to her. What's going to be the reward? I would think that it's some sort of, I mean, I would think a magical item because I think that's the easiest way to sort of reward players. Some sort of, um, I, I would be inclined to say like a cloak or boots of flying. That way your your fighters and your barbarians actually have some mobility on the field. <laughs> Especially if she's a chimney sweep and she's doing all those dance moves that we know chimney sweeps do. Jumping mm -hmm. in and out of chimneys and all these things. I think that some method like that sort of, sort of anti-gravity boots. Ooh, okay winged boots, anti-gravity boots, mm -hmm. or a cloak of levitating or something like that. Get some real Doctor Strange energy going yeah, on. Yeah, exactly. Okay, all right, very cool. And then we also have to consider the other side of the equation. What's going to be the consequence of failure or refusing Kira to even take the side quest option? I mean, I think she's threatening them with the fact that they're going to report back. She's going to report back to her master with all of their secrets. She's been posing as a chimney sweep for them for weeks she knows how to get in and out of the castle. She knows their movements. She could go in and kill them at any point. But if you do this thing for me, and if you trust me not to do anything with that information, which is another question the players will have to sort of grapple with, can we take this person at their word? Mm -hmm. Then I will, I'll keep my mouth shut. I couldn't get into your castle. They spotted my ruse on day two, uh, and I wasn't able to get the information I needed. We need another way. And I can buy you some time against the big bad who has their eyes on you. Oh, okay. So you're teasing that out and explaining, and I'm just imagining like this chimney sweep comes up to the party and is like, oh, I need you to go get this ring from this famous gambler. And the party's like, no way. Right. And then all of a sudden the chimney sweep just changes into a death knight and is like, uh, no, actually you are going to get this thing because otherwise I'm going to teleport out of here back to the one who sent me here. And then we're just going to raise your stronghold to the ground kind of right. a thing and kill you all and drag you down to the nine circles of hell and then of course the challenge for the players and this is something i think based on the tone of the campaign if you're doing sort of a stronghold this is the kind of sort of political decisions you, the players would be forced to make and this is the kind of thing that comes from me having binged all of succession in one month you need some sort of assurance that they're actually going to keep their word because otherwise if you just do this favor for her okay she still has all the leverage she can just mm. keep asking you for stuff. You need some way to actually bind her to her word or find a way to actually like get some assurances from her. And I think that would be really interesting just to see what the players would come up with. Or if they don't, and she's like, all right, well, I'm just going to keep blackmailing you. <laughs> and you're like, oh, shoot. Well, I guess we're going on all these D&D &D adventures, but we should really do something about this death knight. That's just hanging around our castle. Just hanging around our castle, cleaning chimneys like OK, bare minimum, we need to at least stop her from cleaning all these chimneys and getting all of our secrets and have to like work against her, but not you can't just fire her. 
even though you theoretically could, because that won't end well. I think that would just, I, that's just the kind of thing I would just throw at the party and be like, I don't know. I don't know what you're going to do, but you, you cannot keep these things as they're going right now. This is not a tenable situation. You need some leverage. And it might be, yeah. they go and find a bigger fish. They go and find an enemy or they go and try to find a weapon. And maybe that sends them towards another character who will be created on this podcast. We'll have to find out. So what are the goals and motivations of Kira as a character? I think her goal is to be free of her curse. She would actually like to go back to being an ordinary person, a chance that she has never had to be an ordinary person. She's been this assassin bard turned death knight. She would really just like to retire into obscurity. And then how do these affect her general personality? I think that she's reluctant to do the awful things that she does because she doesn't see a way out. You know, she doesn't perceive that there is a solution for her problem. And I think there's actually a little bit of hope if she thinks the party's up to the task. This person who's been a death knight for who knows how long, feeling hope for the first time would be very wary about that. But I think that could make her a little unpredictable in some really interesting ways. How does Kira react with other people? Is she pretty much the same across the board or is she pretty nuanced depending on who she's talking to? I would say that she's probably nuanced. I think she's very good at telling people what she thinks they want to hear. I think she's very adept at reading people and being whoever she needs to be to get what she wants out of them in the short term. I don't think she's especially gifted at the long-term wheels within wheels because she hasn't been able to free herself for this long. I don't even know if she has a plan for when she gets her hand on the ring. Just like, if I can get my hands on the ring, I can, I can come up with the next step of the plan. Getting that far has always eluded her. But in the short term, she's excellent at manipulation. Does Kira happen to have a particular accent or language that she uses? Are there any idiosyncrasies in how she acts or speaks? I think that she's very cold. Darth Vader was a really good poll. You know, very calm and slow and careful and deliberate with her words. That's how I'm picturing her. What impact has Kira made on the world? How has she shaped her local area? I think that it's impossible to know how many chimney sweeps have been nearby when heads of state were killed because no one ever looks at the chimney sweeps. Mm. I think she has shaped the land at the behest of very, very bad people. A couple of them, whoever her master is, probably this lich that we've alluded to. Has she traded you know, masters? Like maybe a god Ooh. of death created her and then this god of death is like, hey, Lich, you're doing such a good job. You should have this death knight in your employ. Because I know, what is it? Colville has the codex where that summons like mm -hmm. a death knight out of it. So just kind of thinking of that. Yeah. So maybe her latest master is this Lich. But then, you know, you were saying like, OK, great. She gets this ring. She doesn't know what the next step is. Like maybe it's going to be a longer journey to actually break this whole cycle and then potentially have an NPC weird pole ally of like, okay, we can maybe summon this death knight to our side who will right. actually help us out in combat. Maybe if we play our cards, right? Yeah. I like that a lot. It could be literally magical, like the codex you mentioned, or it could just be like when Thanos trades his kids to Ronan and the guardians of the galaxy first film, like trading cards, you know, just like mm. she doesn't get a say in where she's sent. It could be magical as well. I, I think that depends on what works better for the game. 
And before I interrupted you with my cool idea, <laughs> the impact on the world is that like, you know, the winter soldier being like the real reason why all these assassinations or these political things happened or like, you know, conspiracy theories and grassy knolls and whatever else. So like Kira has like been the agent, the tool that's been behind it. I think that's exactly it. I think that she has been the instrument to keep opposition to the Lich from ever getting to the point where they would pose a challenge to him. Now I'm just imagining that Winter Soldier scene where it's like mm-hmm. red, boxcar, 43, and then like that's the code <laughs> phrase that gets the Death Knight to like calm down and not get angry and attack you or whatever like that. So there's okay, like but, a, a magical phrase you have to say. But we did talk about how she's sort of bound by some sort of abyssal language, right? Or some sort of abyssal name. I was thinking of Hellboy at the time where he has this sort of secret name, but that exactly also works with the boxcar. I don't, I don't remember any of them. Right. Yeah. I know it's a random string of words, but if you say it in the right order, like that's the, the thing to unlock it. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's, I think it's an abyssal, but there is a, there is a phrase that if you're the one who speaks it, you're the one who has command over her. Ooh. And that's probably a very closely guarded secret. Yes. Yeah, so we were talking about trying to find leverage. So it's like, if you can figure out the abyssal phrase, then you can get her on your side or whatever. Exactly, and that just lines up with what we were talking about as well. Is she magically summoned? Is she magically given control by each of these people? Or like, because it could be that whoever's in control says, hey, go and follow this person's orders. But the person that she's working for doesn't have the command words, doesn't have that level of control. Or it could be somebody figures out the words and steals her away and now has control over her. And essentially she has no autonomy for what happens to her. You know, much like the same thing you get with the Yugoloths, where they are summoned reluctantly by the people who make these deals and bargains and they're always trying to find a way out of them. I think she is trying to find a way out of her constant war against dissidents. And then the final optional question we have here do you have any current problems that prevent you from being a bigger player on the stage? Probably the fact of like some sort of abyssal passphrase code contract binding or whatever. I mean, ironically, both from being a bigger player on the stage and a smaller player on the stage. Yeah. But yeah, that I think that that answer is exactly right. It's the abyssal name, the abyssal title, I guess is what we, we would call it. So it's not like Winter Soldier in the MCU where it's just like Soviet conditioning that sunk into the subconscious of Bucky Barnes Winter Soldier to get him in a compliant state. Like it's a some sort of abyssal title or phrase or something that gets her to like listen to you and be under your command. It's a true name. It's the name of her as a death knight. Well, I think we've learned a lot about this character that I think it's time we head into a random encounter. Yes, definitely. All right. And of course, this segment of the show doesn't have a sponsor. But if you want to change that and become my rich, eccentric, noble lord or noble woman to lend me your patronage, I'm happy to take it. Talk to me on social media, but send me all the details in my email, sidekicksandsidequests at gmail.com to give me all the details and all that good sort of kind of stuff. Listen to this podcast through the Zencaster program, which is what I use to record it. I'm just happy that you're listening anyway. And without further ado, let's get to that random encounter. So this is the segment where we do a role play, a little vignette, a scene with our character that we've made here today. So with Kira, the Death Knight chimney sweep, uh, (laughs) the question becomes, what kind of scene are you interested in showcasing her in? Is it Mm. going to be her meeting a podcast adventurer character? Is this her talking with the Lich? 
Is this her with the God of death who created her in the first place? Or I don't know. What kind of scene are you interested in showcasing Kira in? Those are both really exciting or all of those are really interesting. I think uh, we're going to go with what happens when she meets an adventurer, because I think that's the most useful for someone who wants to steal this character to hear how she might make her pitch. And so then on this podcast, we have several different adventurer characters available in a pool. So we have Duncan, who's the happy-go-lucky, chaotic, good adventurer fighter for hire. Mm-hmm. We've got Sonia, the warrior woman, who multiclass from a barbarian into a paladin who serves to redeem the undead. Ooh. We have Korak, a lawful evil arcane trickster roguish dwarf. There's Chrisley, the herbalist botanist, wood elf druid who multiclassed into a cleric who serves living memory. There's Orion, who's the astral elf illusionist wizard. There's Agape, who's the tiefling wild magic sorcerer that's like Feywild inspired. Or if none of those characters sound interesting to you, we could just make up someone completely new and add them to the list. I'm sorry, I just have to say, we've got our cameras on for this recording. You listed all those characters off the top of your head. I didn't realize that. Very impressive. I was really impressed by that. Um, I think we got to go with Sonya, the one who's a paladin who wants to uh, reform undead. Where we last left our hero, Sonya, she was in a desert town with Axios, the revenant priest, who is her mentor uh, that she works alongside. They went to the desert town, and that's where they met Leroy Jenkins, Leroy Jenkins, the vampire artist. So they were able to retrieve the painting, get it back to him and begin that process. And Leroy Jenkins was reformed. He's no longer a vampire. He's back to his normal self and he's learned his hard lesson and decided to still make his own path forward as an artist and not necessarily live in that legacy of being a foolhardy adventurer. And so it's not that long after they've left the desert, Sonia and Axios are traveling and they come across to another major metropolis. And of course, it's taken quite some time to journey and they've had to rest a couple of days. But now we're at that point where Axios is about ready to wake up from his extended rest period and his eyes flit open. He looks down at his journal and he pulls out the journal and he looks at it to read what the God is telling him, what kind of cryptic answer he's given him. And Sony is there witnessing it. She doesn't quite know what to make of it because this is the first time maybe that she's really seen this happen. And so the writing appears in a script that maybe she can't quite read, but Axios looks at it and then looks up at Sonia and kind of intones, There's something foul, but also something mysterious that's going on in this town. And I think it is best if we move with haste to find this and deal with it. And so she's like, okay, yes, yes, lead the way. Because Axios is kind of, like a bloodhound in some points in trying to find this. And so they're going through this town and, you know, people come up to them and they're like, you know, recognizing their, their garb and their religious imagery. And they're like, Oh, we have the, you know, we have these problems down here, but it's like, for whatever reason, Axios and Sonia are on this beeline making for this manor house. And so when they knock and they open and like the Butler sees who it is. And then it's just kind of like, overwhelmed but also is just just moves aside like just the sheer command and presence that axios and sonia have he just parts ways and move and so it's not too long they're walking into this large expansive foyer in this echoing hall 
and then they come across one of you know many fireplaces that are built in this place and they turn and look they're looking towards kira and so what is it that they're seeing they see a um plump sturdy woman with sort of curly red hair uh you know with a um, broom partway up the the chimney uh, turns back oh, i know is 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 there something i can uh, help you help you all both with you'll see axios raise his hand up and you see his eyes flash thaumaturgic sort of voice it echoes and reverberates in this place and he will be like i mean you no harm but i must ask you to reveal your true form and it like almost as this with his sheer power he like exerts his hand forward and there's like a force that just kind of like emanates out as if to like dispel any magic that might be in the area and does it take effect in dispelling the magic from the hat i think so i think it would uh, the uh, form shimmers and standing there is a armored woman all of her skin covered in the sort of soot colored armor uh, ash sort of crumbling from underneath the armor from something inside as if whatever's in there is just dust that just keeps generating more dust uh, she draws a wand from her gauntlet and waves it, and the door slams closed behind Axios and Sonya, and she slips the wand back in and says, there really wasn't any need for that. And so Axios will just stand there and look, and so Sonya will step forward, and she's taking Axios's lead, and so she's not trying to be aggressive in this moment, and so she will speak up, she'll say, we mean you no harm. We are servitors of the one who seeks to redeem those who walk the path of undeath. Axios has shown me the way, and I have seen his power and his might and what he can do. There is a chance of redemption. There is a chance to save your soul if that is what you want. And that is the path that I hope that you will want to take. And Axios is just standing there in all of his presence. He looks you know, solid, but he also looks skeletal and ghostly at the same time, but he's just holding his ground and he's not doing anything. He's not being violent or combative or anything. He's standing there as someone as holding authority and with power and command and respect, but he's there trying to appeal to Kira, being there for her and wanting to be there for her and help her out. The uh, armored figure, Kira, takes the... uh broom that has now become a um a halberd but holds it at her side as she's sort of walking around the room uh keeping distance but still moving and saying you ask me what it is that i want and i've not been allowed to want for longer than either of you have been alive i no longer have the option of agency of desire what i want is immaterial for everything I could is outside of my grasp. And Axios will reach down to his book and he holds it open and it's just like a flittering of pages happens. And then he looks down and then he holds the book up and it has drawn on it a ring that matches the description of what she's thinking, but she hasn't verbalized or said out loud. Mm -hmm. I think the halberd like clatters against the stone floor and she bends and picks it up and sort of tries to regain composure that ring is lost to me you know of it axios will speak i know of what i am told 
and I know my charge and I know my purpose. And it is for you and for your redemption, should you want it, should you seek it. So he's kind of speaking more cryptically and kind of in a more priestly sort of way. Sonia will take that opportunity to kind of take a few more steps forward. Again, not raising any weapons or anything like that. She will say, I have walked the warrior's path and I can do what needs to be done. If you need something to take your first steps of redemption, I can help you if that is what you truly want. You will find no tricks, no falsehoods here. We serve him. We serve the one who gave Axios his rebirth and his charge to redeem those so that they may not suffer eternal damnation. You are not the first to extend me such an option, but it is little matter to me whether you succeed or fail. You are welcome to try. None have successfully reclaimed the ring, but if you can bring it to me, I can use it to free myself from the influence of the Dark Lord who commands me. And Sonia will look back at Axios to see if, like, do you believe what she's saying? And Axios just stands resolute and firm, and he just intones in celestial. And he's saying a prayer out loud, and it's reverberating and washing over the room. Does that affect Kira in any way with him speaking celestial and saying these kinds of prayers and holy words out loud? I think she shrinks to the corner of the room, but the magic still takes hold. And she still speaks the truth, as far as he can tell. So he will say, We will help you. We will help you find redemption. I will remain here with you, and I will keep you safe. For the one that I serve is greater than any master that you may have. Sonia will go. She will find this ring, and she will bring it back. Do you agree to these accords? With an amendment. I am working on business for my master. Now, I can stall it for a time, but it won't last forever. At some point, I will need to make moves against the people who live here. So I say this to you both. Do as you will. Try what you may. I welcome your opportunity to attempt this. I hope you succeed. I will be disappointed if you fail. But if you tell anyone of my presence here, the gutters will flow with blood before the sun rises again. As far as you're concerned, you've just met Kira, the lovely, lovely chimney sweep, kindly old woman, but not someone to be trifled with. The scene is tense, and the words are exchanged, and knowing glances are shared between all, and so then Axios will glow little brighter to like show strength and power so there's like a warmth and a radiance that washes over kira it's like a purifying fire and so kind of like a taste of it so it's almost like for a brief glimpse of a second kira is able to tap into her old life she gets flashes she gets images of her past it burns it pains her to her very core but yet she can see those moments. She can see back when she was a bard. She can see flittering moments of her parents and of growing up and of her mortal life that she once had before. And then as soon as the pain starts to get to be too much, the light decreases in intensity and Axios returns to his more normal form. And so then he will stand there again and will say, That is but a taste 
of the power that I wield for the one for whom I serve. We will honor our agreements, and we will see you made right. Kira's sort of flexing her fingers, the, the feeling as if the cold, dead sensation in her fingers, she felt life in them for just a moment. And I think sort of like instinctively was reaching out to Axios, even though she was repelled in some way by the pain, there was something instinctive about reaching out to that warmth. And now she's sort of looking at her fingers. Hm. I'd completely forgotten about our dogs. I can grant you a month. No more time than that before I must take the steps required by my master. And, holy man, if you are to cast magic upon me once again, ask first. I have very little left to my name that I can call my own. The right to not have magic inflicted upon me still counts among those. Axios nods. He understands agency and, and all that stuff, but... He is a servant of his god, and he has been doing this for a lot longer than she might think. He does not try to presume and be super duper overpowered all the time. Mm -hmm. And there are limits to his powers, for sure. But Axios will calm down, and he will respect her, and he'll hold up his hand as if to take away some sort of aura or force that would prevent her from returning to her guise. And so then he will say, Very well, we will return to our abode at the tavern, and Sonia will begin her mission to find this. If you have any whereabouts that we should know about to begin our searching, we can work out those details. I think that she uh, sort of regards them and says, talk to the people in the underworld about the fighting pits. Find out who places the bets at the high tiers when the blood flows. They'd know that ring. <laughs> scene so there we go what'd you think of getting to be kira i think that was a lot of fun she's a she's an interesting compelling character i like that character a lot for what she is you know not doing things because she wants to doing things because she is is basically commanded to very interesting and compelling character i think that she'd be very at home as well in in a ravenloft game and i'm, I'm starting to get ready for one so uh yeah, I was going to say, I know you were talking about in your YouTube videos how you're preparing for a new game and stuff like that. So I was That's like, right. have we just created a new favorite reoccurring NPC villain that might potentially turn into an ally of the party? Might do, might do. I think that is a, a really interesting uh, character to slip into Velaki or Kresk or even in all of the cities just pursuing the party. I think Kira would make a lot of sense. I think she's probably going to show up in my next Strahd game. Woo this podcast has done its public service work. <laughs> yes, indeed. I Man, what an interesting character. I like her a lot. Since we're now in the final thoughts section of the show, I always like to check in with my guests and just, you know, ask, hey, how was your time on the show? Did you enjoy it? You know, yeah. feedback, critiques, and all that sort of kind of no, stuff. It was excellent. No critiques. Really wonderful. I mean, I, when you reached out, I, I listened to some episodes and I really enjoy this show. So I'm very excited to... Um, to be a part of it and uh hopefully people also get a chance to sneak this character into their own campaigns maybe you'll have to change the name in case your party listens to the podcast but uh <laughs> uh if they do then that just means there's more listeners to this show so that's not ultimately a bad thing unless you've got anything else that you want to share about your experience and and all that then i always leave the final moments of the podcast to the guests so 
Where can people find you online? What projects and things do you need to promote? And are there any causes or passions that you want us to be made aware of? Yeah, um, I am Mike Christensen. I am on YouTube on Super Geek Mike. I am on Instagram at Super Geek Mike. I'm on TikTok at Super Geek Mike. I'm on Twitter as seldom as I can be. And um, I'm just working on some really awesome videos. I've got some really exciting ones scheduled for this month. I think by the time this comes out, I've got some Pathfinder content coming out in the next couple of weeks and um, right after this episode airs. And really excited for some um, upcoming videos about the world that Critical Role takes place in and what we can steal from that for our settings uh, and for our games. As for causes... I don't have any specific like charities or anything like that, but just be kind to each other and don't be jerks. It seems like such a simple thing, um, but really it is just life is too short to be awful to each other. And recently seeing more and more articles of misbehavior in entertainment fields, literally right before this interview was reading about some really poor behavior in the writer's room of Lost, which is a real bummer because it was a show I liked a lot. And just like, Come on, y'all. Just be kind to each other. There's no reason for any of that stuff. Amen to that. Yeah, the golden rule. That's what we like to promote on this podcast. So with that, thank you so much, Mr. Super Geek Mike Christensen, <laughs> for being a guest on this podcast. I can't wait to have you back on. It might take a couple of years because, you know, this <laughs> list of guests continues to grow and we always like to have people come back on. But I can't wait to have you back on to make even more interesting NPCs. I'm very excited. I look forward to the next time I have a chance to join you. Thank you for listening to this episode of Sidekicks and SideQuests. Be sure to subscribe to the podcast through Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, and Overcast. Or just feel free to save the RSS feed to use the app of your choice. Visit our website, SidekicksAndSideQuests.com, for links, write-ups of the NPCs, and to learn more about the show and the guests who have been on it. To stay up to date and interact via social media, you can follow the podcast on various social media platforms, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and Reddit by searching for Side KQ Podcast. You can also find a very tiny community that's growing on Discord as well. I would love to talk D&D and showcase your fan art, stories of how you used our NPCs, discussions, and commentary. If you would like to hail the bod, simply send an email to sidekicksandsidequests at gmail.com. To help this show be the resource it's meant to be, I ask that you please leave a review on iTunes, give it five stars, why don't you, and help spread the word and share our podcast with your friends and family. Whether you're a veteran player or an aspiring dungeon master, there's something here for everyone, and I want to hear about it. As mentioned in the NPC creations section of the show, I do in fact have a Patreon. If you love this podcast and you want to help support and expand our operations, I would appreciate it so much if you would go over to patreon.com forward slash sidekicks and sidequests. No matter your lifestyle expenses, we have wonderful rewards at every level of Patreon membership tier. We have modest, comfortable, wealthy, and aristocratic accommodations, and we welcome all patrons to the levitating platter. Sidekicks and Sidequests is unofficial fan content permitted under the fan content policy, meaning I'm not approved or endorsed by Wizards. Portions of the materials used are property of Wizards of the Coast. Copyright Wizards of the Coast, LLC. Common creative license, OGL, blah, 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 all that good stuff. Thank you for your support, and I'll see you at the pub next time. Bar to rock on one, two, one, two, three, four!